Hello, I'm Dan Schaefer, the producer of the Alliance Party After Dark. This episode is being released on March 28, 2021. The Alliance Party has experienced a number of exciting changes recently, and we're getting ready for an overall exciting year. Part of the recent changes includes Jonathan Etheridge moving into the national chair position. We're also diving back into our manifesto and updating it to address current issues. And that being the case, I thought I'd rebroadcast a highly rated episode from June 7th of last year, 2020, where we talked with Jim Rex and Jonathan Etheridge about our manifesto. Keep in mind that when this episode was originally recorded, Jim Rex was our national chair and Jonathan Etheridge was a council member at large. Jim has since moved out of the national chair position and now Jonathan has that responsibility. But the manifesto and its message remain as applicable today as it was back then. So sit back and enjoy a trip into the not-too-distant past. Welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark, a podcast for the politically aware brought to you by the Alliance Party. Content for this episode was recorded on June 6, 2020. And a good evening to you. I'm Dan Schaefer, producer of the podcast. Before we get started this evening, I'd like to mention that we are soliciting direct feedback from you, our listening audience, regarding this podcast. If you have any suggestions for podcasts to cover, or if you know of someone you feel we should be talking to on this podcast, please let us know. We can be reached via email at podcast at theallianceparty.com. That's podcast at theallianceparty.com. The Alliance Party is all one word, no hyphens, no underscores. Also, we have a Twitter feed at Alliance on Air. Again, that's at Alliance on Air. Please don't hesitate to contact us and help us generate some noise. So this evening, we have a very special treat. We're going to hear from the Alliance Party's national chair, Jim Rex, as well as Jonathan Etheridge. Jonathan is one of the Alliance Party's at-large members of the council. He has over a decade of experience in policy research and development and has led advocacy efforts with state legislatures on issues related to veterans, health care reform, technology, and privacy. He is a veteran of the armed forces and a champion of groups dedicated to the causes of veterans. So this evening, Jim and Jonathan will discuss a new document just released from the Alliance Party called the Alliance Party 2020 Manifesto and subtitled America, the Gold Medal Nation. So before going any further, hello, Jim, and welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark podcast. Hello, Daniel. It's good to be with you once again. Yeah, it's uh, always a pleasure to have you with us on these podcasts. And uh, hello, Jonathan, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Dan. I appreciate the opportunity, and it's good to talk to you again as well. All right. So before we get started, I'd like to give a brief outline of the ground that this manifesto covers. I'm currently holding a copy of it in my hand. It's a fairly short yet compact read of about 10 pages, single-spaced. It uses the analogy of the Olympic medals to convey a sense of ultimate performance to be the best in a world competition. Now, given that the summer games have been postponed due to the pandemic, the Alliance Party nevertheless still carries the flame of passion in its heart. We all know what it means to be a gold medalist. We all know that the gold medal is awarded to the best of the best, the competitor who represents the pinnacle of performance and achievement. Unfortunately, when America is measured against its international competitors in the contests that truly matter, we too often do not even earn a place on the medal stand. This has not always been the case, however, but over the past several decades, the reality is that in the critical measures of educational outcomes for our children, incidents of violence, individual carbon footprint, likelihood of upward social and economic mobility, 
and affordable quality health care and individual longevity, our country consistently ranks below our global competitors. To be sure, we Americans have some work to do. It's not a matter of not being able to do it. Our collective will has been tested in the past, and we've always prevailed. And now our will is being tested again. We're on the field, and the starting gun is getting ready to fire. So let's talk about the manifesto and how it charts a course that'll get us back on the metal stand again. Let's start with you, Jim. Uh, give us a highlights of the manifesto and tell us about the role it plays in the future of the Alliance Party as well as the future of our nation. Well, thank you, Dan. As you know, and I think as most of your listeners know, um, we are a very young party. We've been in existence now about 19 months, and this is our inaugural year. This is our first election year. And the leadership of the party felt it was essential that we have a statement that is directly related to some of the most pressing and urgent issues that our country faces at this moment in time. And, you know, what to call it, uh, we finally came up with what we think is the appropriate name for it, which is Manifesto. Um, the Oxford Dictionary definition of Manifesto is a public declaration of policy or aims, especially one issued before an election by a political party or a candidate. So that's what the term means, um, broadly speaking. The preamble, the metaphor with the um, Olympic gold medals that you just alluded to in the introduction is a part of the manifesto and it's designed to make it clear that we need to start raising our expectations, raising our standards, if you will, for what our nation can be and must be, especially in these tri trying times. And um, so it's important to point out that for the Alliance Party, which as your listeners hopefully know by now, is a different approach to politics. This manifesto is meant to be a, a conversation about some of our most urgent and pressing problems, but also a conversation about some new ways of solving and addressing those problems. And um, hopefully when your listeners have time and they can actually read the manifesto, they'll see some very provocative statements in there on purpose because we have in front of us right now an unprecedented set of challenges. Uh, you know, a $25 trillion national debt, which is climbing. Uh, Social Security Trust Fund, which is about to run out. Medicare Trust Fund, which is also running out. Um, we're down 20 million jobs since February, and that's after adding two and a half million just this week. Um, the pandemic, the economic downturn, the major civil unrest that we're seeing in our streets. Um, we have some serious problems that need to be addressed in a new way, in a more effective way. And that's what this manifesto is designed to um, help our candidates do, but also help our voters to start thinking about where we are as a nation and what we expect of our elected leaders as we uh, go to the polls in November. Good. And um, so this manifesto is something that is published on our website. And um, I really think that people are going to start reading it. So, but they're also going to have some feedback. So John, do you have any comments about how people can provide feedback or, or, uh, discuss the manifesto? Or are we going to hold any like virtual town halls or anything like that? Yeah, thanks, Dan. Uh, we are definitely going to have virtual town halls um, and invite feedback on the proposals um, because, you know, we're interested 
and, and seeing both the party and our candidates govern on behalf of all Americans. And that means taking in and considering ideas and data from all relevant sources. Um, you know, so we'll have virtual town halls. Uh, we also have opportunities for people to engage with us on our website and via social media, whether that's Twitter or Facebook pages. Uh, and also, you know, as, as you said earlier in the podcast, they can ask questions here and interact with us uh, through through this forum. Okay. So let's jump into the details right now. Um, well, maybe the 30,000 foot view. Could you, uh, John, could you go over um, the major topics in this manifesto? Just give us a, a brief view of what this thing looks like. Yeah, what, so one of the things we want to focus on, and, and I loved when Jim, you know, brought the, the gold medal metaphor because it, it resonated with me personally. You know, my whole life I'm, I'm told, you know, America's the world leader, you know, the, the leader of the free world. And then we, we started to look at the things that really, and the measures that determine the quality of life of our citizens. So do we have a healthy economy that delivers value to all Americans and is sustainable? Uh, you know, are we good stewards of the environment and doing our part to combat climate change? Are we providing quality and affordable health care to Americans, and are we educating future generation of Americans to be competitive on the global stage? And when we looked at all four of those areas, we could just say, no, at once we might have led in those areas. But now when we, we look at the competition and the measures of success and achievement, uh, we're falling further and further behind. And so the manifesto in these policies was an attempt to work with experts uh, to identify a course of action, a, a whole of government transformation around these four areas uh, to be able to say that we will reposition America leading by example, uh, an example to emulate, that we can provide the best quality of life for our citizens, which is appropriate when we claim to be proud of the fact that we're the wealth, you know, the greatest economy and the wealthiest nation on the face of the earth. Yet in the areas where you'd expect to see that wealth materialize, we're, we're falling short. So mm -hmm. uh, that's that's kind of what our policy position is uh, and the four high-level topics uh, that we, we looked at. So these are very important topics and very appropriate to talk about these days because I do feel that this country is falling behind in these areas. So what are the Democrats and the Republicans, the two major parties, what are they doing about these topics? It's a good question. I mean, it, you know, the Democratic and Republican Party are obviously reading the same tea leaves we are and, and hearing the same feedback on what's important to Americans. But the difference is they, being the duopoly, have a vested interest in ideologically pure solutions rather than pragmatic ones that will actually solve the problem. And so every time they face one of these issues, they're filtering it through that lens. And they're only bringing in and accepting data and ideas that are cherry picked to fit within these predefined mental boundaries, which means that they're inevitably victims of their own self-inflicted group thing. Mm -hmm. So we believe that because we were able to step outside of those boundaries mm -hmm. and look across the broader representation of the political spectrum, that we more properly appropriately represent a broader swath of the American people. We're focused on following the evidence, following the ideas, wherever they lead us, 
rather than rejecting those that don't conform to our ideological bias. Good. So I'd like to move on uh, to my final question in in terms of um, the overall picture of the manifesto here. And this this question is for you, Jim. Um, How strictly or unstrictly will the party enforce the manifesto among its candidates? Well, you know, we don't want our candidates ever to um, to be to have their positions or their um, campaign rhetoric determined by a narrow ideological uh, position. Uh, we don't want them to have to adhere to a political party's whips. Um, we do expect them to adhere to the candidate agreement that they have signed, which, as you know, uh, requires term limits transparency, including their income tax returns from the three most current years. So we do we do place a lot of emphasis on how they behave as they're running for office. And then once they're in office, how they behave as elected officials. But we give them a tremendous amount of latitude when it comes to their uh, positions on issues. We want them to be responsible to their constituents and not only to the constituents who vote for them, but also for those who vote against them and not just for the constituents who are living today, but those who are yet unborn. So that's, that's if there's any prescription, it, it comes from their constituents, not from the party itself. But we do want to give them direction. We do want to provoke them to think uh, creatively and innovatively about how to approach problems that have yet been adequately addressed, either in their state or, or in the country itself. So um, this mm-hmm. is not prescription, it's direction. Uh, We'll spend a lot of time with our candidates between now and November uh, talking about the manifesto, getting their input, and letting them decide what parts of it are relevant to them and their constituents. Okay. So uh, why don't we just sort of jump into some of the details about the manifesto. Uh, Jonathan gave an answer before regarding the the, the four areas that the uh, four major topics that the manifesto covers. And just for a brief review, it's it's the it's the economic renewal is the first uh, first area. There's environmental stewardship as a second area, and providing quality and affordable health care is a third area, and uh, educating the future generations of Americans. In other words, education would be the uh, fourth topic here. So um, let's jump into some of the details here. I, I read the manifesto and and uh, looked at the fiscal part of it with with a lot of detail here because. Uh, We've had previous podcasts with people from the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget, so I'm very conscious of some of the things that are going on at, at the uh, at least at the federal level these days. And there is one statement in in the in the manifesto, and I just want to take it uh, take it out of um, out of the manifesto and quote it at this point. It says, "Quote: Our leaders have abandoned their fiduciary responsibility." to be good financial stewards of the public's finances because the American voter has let them off the hook time and time again. Now, um, I don't completely uh, disregard this, but I do take a little bit of issue with it because I believe it's not so much the American voter that let the politicians off the hook, but I believe on the contrary, the voter really hasn't been given much of a choice these last, you know, since almost the beginning of the country, really. It's just been two parties, right? And both these dominant parties are playing the same game. So really, you know, what, what choice did the voter have? So um, 
I don't know. Do you want to comment on that, Jim or, or, or John? Yeah, I'd like to. Having, having been in office, um, that really does resonate with me, that question, Dan. Um, well, I think we've let them off the hook in, in a number of ways. First of all, we keep reelecting them uh, time and time again. Mm-hmm. Uh, more than 90% of the time, incumbents are reelected in every election cycle nationwide. So here we are getting these terrible results. And we keep reelecting the same, same incumbent people. who's been in that office delivering those results. Mm-hmm. Even worse, um, the majority of time, the majority of candidates in every election cycle, and your listeners can check this because most people don't aren't aware of it, the majority go unchallenged. There's not really a serious challenger for many of these incumbents. And some of that's because of gerrymandering and, and uh, certainly because of the overwhelming advantage that incumbents have over challengers because of special interests and money that they have. Mm-hmm. So, you know, here we are with this huge debt, which is um, likely to surpass World War II's levels. As I mentioned earlier, Social Security, Medicare um, in jeopardy. And we're just simply not holding them accountable as voters. And they answer only to lobbyists, special interests and their own party, their own party whips. So people can do things. They can um, do write-ins. They can run against them themselves as candidates. They can support third-party efforts like ours or independents. Um, They're not limited to continuing to return people to office who are doing a miserable job, not just for them, but for the nation as a whole. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, I, I sort of showing my own age here at this point, but I do remember the 1980s, we had this, um, this um, I would call it an economic folly called the trickle-down economic model. And it, it amazes me, though, that this is still being talked about as a serious um, economic model out there by, you know, among politicians. And um, I just, uh, you know, like, like I say, it, it just seems to me that you, you, you're right. You know, we, we Americans have not come to the conclusion yet that these things are not working and we're not getting rid of the politicians that are that are promoting these these follies. So that kind of brings me to another point right here, and that and that is that uh, campaigns, they cost money and donor money comes from people who want to attach strings to that money. So a lot of our financial ills uh, would therefore appear to grow out of campaign finance challenges. And um, I was just sort of wondering what uh, what, what sort of comment this, uh, from, a, from a manifesto perspective, how are we looking at this? How are we looking at uh, the, the, that cycle, the, the doom loop, to borrow a phrase from Lee Drutman, uh, the doom loop that exists between, you know, the, 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 doning money, the donor money that comes in that sponsors the campaigners the people that are campaigning for office that gets them into office. And then once they're in office, they have to keep getting that, that money and keep playing the game that the donors want them to play. How do we, how do we challenge, how do we, uh, how do we get out of that loop? Well, let, let me jump on that one again. Um, it's okay with Jonathan. Uh, you know, certainly campaign finance reform is badly needed. There's just no doubt about that. But I think our, our sort of pragmatic, realization is that if we're ever going to change things like term limits, finance, campaign finance reform, transparency, root out the corruption, we have to first begin 
to replace the career professional politicians with enough term limited public servants in order to introduce this new legislation and to get it voted into law mm-hmm. within within our state and our federal congressional bodies. So when you when you ask people about things like campaign finance reform, most of them will kind of acknowledge that it's needed. But frankly, it's probably not at the top of most of their most urgent problems right now, especially. And so if we're going to um, elect these new types of public servants that the Alliance Party is all about, um, we talk about it. It's on our website. It's it's one of the positions we take. It, it, has, to, it has to happen. But it, it was not addressed purposely in the manifesto, Dan, because we're trying to focus in on what we think are the most urgent, overwhelming problems that need to be addressed. And hopefully that will get our candidates elected so they can get in and deal with a myriad of needs, including things like campaign finance reform. Okay. Good. So uh, there's also another part of this uh, fiscal portion of this manifesto that talks about a job guarantee program. And I would just like to challenge John, uh, Jonathan on this one. Um, I, I like the idea of the job guarantee uh, program. Um, it provides a lot of, um, of financial stability and financial security for people. But I do see issues with trying to determine, you know, those that can work from those that cannot and, and what happens, you know. And this is, I, I suspect, a high, a high majority of people want to work but there are this minority that refuse to work, or at least that's what the rumor is anyways. And so how do we uh, answer to the issue of a, a job guarantee program for people who perhaps refuse to work? Yeah, that's a great question. There's always going to be people who will choose not to work. Um, and in our program, we don't differentiate between those who choose not to work and those who are unable to work because of a disability when we talk about alternative living income guarantees to a job through the program. So for example, we're saying that, you know, if you're unable to work or in, in the spirit of your question, unwilling to work, um, you'd be paid a living income. That's the federal poverty level plus 30%. Um, and this, this same money would apply to workers who are temporarily in between jobs. If they've seen their job, eliminated as a result of a transition from a fossil fuel-based energy industry to a green industry, uh, or as a result of automation, you know, they'll have access to these funds while they're transitioning into their new and rewarding opportunity through the program. But the fact of the matter is, and I think the COVID-19 crisis has certainly revealed this to be more and more true Mm -hmm. as time passes. and, And I think it'll be exponentially more apparent if if we see a second or a third wave like some experts are predicting but the economic and societal benefits of providing people a living income whether they choose to work or not to work so that they can pay rent and buy their groceries and support their families because we forget sometimes these are not just the head of the household that we're talking about these you know some these are single mothers taking care of families or you know they've got all kinds of people who rely on them we can't just abandon them mm-hmm. but those benefits of providing a living income outweigh the cost to the program and even from a purely financial perspective it's if you ignore the human aspect of it it keeps dollars circulating through the system 
at the point where it has the most return on investment, which is namely consumer purchasing. And that's been a large extent of why Congress has authorized unprecedented levels of social welfare uh, to the average American. It's because they realize that, you know, many of the, the only things keeping many of the businesses who are able to stay open afloat is the fact that people are still able to buy necessary goods and services. And so we're saying, yes, we need to continue that. And so even if someone chooses not to work, uh, which I think is is a very small minority, right. um, that that you know the, the benefit outweighs the cost. Good. Yeah, and I didn't mean to you know, pick on people that choose not to work. As I say, I think it's a very small minority of people. But I'm more worried about the um, the um, um, optics of it, right? Because that's going to be one of the big that's going to be one of the big arguments against this. And people are always going to say, "Well, what about those people that are too lazy to work?" And I'm like, "Well, show me a person that's too lazy to work. Show me a person that won't you know, that won't uh, jump at the opportunity to have a job when he or she does not already have a job." And you know, they can't find these people. But but that criticism does have to be answered anyway. So yeah, Dan, if I could follow up, I mean, mm-hmm. we agree. That's why when we when we looked at this, we eventually started to do research on and settled on the fact of a job guarantee program, because we believe that most people want to work and we have to protect the dignity of that work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if, if we're going to get to as close as possible to full employment. Yeah. Okay. And I noticed there no comments uh, that I could see anyways in the manifesto uh, regarding you know, getting people to work. That, that One of the things that does interfere with people working in this country is offshoring it. Right. So uh, the textile industry, which um, was very strong, I think, in, in, in your neck of the woods here, Jim, in, in South Carolina, uh, I don't even think it's around anymore. If it is, it's a very limited amount because all this was just over, offshored. Um, how um, part of a job guarantee program, I would think, would have to address the idea of offshoring our work. Do you have any comments about that? I, well, first, Dan, I would. It's a great question, and you're right. Um, you know, it's something that we've had to face as as the world has has adopted um, in globalization over the last few decades. But at this point, I would begin by mm-hmm. questioning the idea that we can and want to try to control offshoring. It requires us to assume that we can even get the jobs that were most likely to have been outsourced. Those in technology human resources and manufacturing back at all. And I'm not certain. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think we also have to ask the question on whether or not the government is the right actor to try to restrict the operations and potentially the competitive advantage of private businesses. American consumers have benefited from the lower cost of manufactured goods, Mm -hmm. just as much as the company themselves have benefited from the lower cost to produce those goods as a result of of offshoring or, or outsourcing. So we would be constantly fighting against the accusation that we're using the levers of government to artificially restrict job outsourcing and thus making American companies less competitive in the global marketplace. Mm -hmm. I think we will see better and more sustainable results if we focus instead on creating new domestic jobs by investing in green industries and a federal job guarantee program. Uh, can I can I just jump on to sure. that with you, Jonathan? I agree. I think um, when you look at the manifesto, you'll see an emphasis, as we already pointed out, on reforming our educational system, 
And if we're going to have uh, an innovation nation, if we're going to win the gold medal economically, it's going to have to be in large part because we have a well-educated, highly trained citizenry that can fill these jobs, including these guaranteed programs that we're talking about to make sure that perhaps for the first time in our recent history, we'll have true full employment. And if you envision that, that scenario, full true employment, um, we will probably need to offshore some jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, Americans won't be able to do all of them. And I think in some cases, those jobs will be uh, lower skilled jobs. Hopefully we'll be educated for the higher skilled jobs. And I, th- I think what our emphasis needs to be, not so much on keeping all jobs in the United States, but making sure that corporations who seek these lower wage environments um, don't violate human rights, uh, don't do damage to the environment. In other words, we ought to have some standards that are global that we can feel assured are being addressed, whether the product or the service is being made or delivered from another country or whether it's being done here in the United States. So when we worry about offshore jobs, and you mentioned the textile industry here in the South, which is a great example. I mean, we have these abandoned textile mills all over the all over our part of the country. And you see these textile villages where, you know, the workers used to live, mm-hmm. uh, either vacated or, or run down. But a lot of that was because those workers did not have another set of skills or were not given that set of skills to um, to be employed in other tasks. And unfortunately, some of those textile jobs went to countries where corporations took advantage, serious advantage, not only of the workers, but of the environmental standards uh, that could have been and should have been imposed in those work environments. Yeah. Uh, it, it, there is an environmental impact, and I'm I'm kind of glad you you both uh, Jim you you and Jonathan brought this up because that was gonna I was gonna try to transition over to um, the environmental part of our discussion here. Um, we we talk about uh, uh, the world environment and and also the carbon footprint of the United States, and um, and I, I I really believe in what the manifesto says in this area. But one thing that I thought was not mentioned very well was, yes, the United States is a big producer of carbon, and perhaps even on a on a per capita basis might even be the largest producer, but not the absolute largest. And that would be China, I believe, produces a, a little bit more than twice the amount of carbon as the U.S. So, um, I. Why it, does the manifesto, or should it, um, also address our relationships with other countries? Because environmental issues is a global issue; it's not just a country issue. The preamble that we've talked about, setting the gold medal standard, mm-hmm. um, this is an area that the United States needs to lead in. If we want the rest of the world to address climate change, the nation that has the most robust economy, and who is the worst violator per capita. You're right, China as a, as a nation does more damage than we do, but per capita, we're the worst offender. Mm-hmm. So if we want the rest of the world to follow suit, we have to walk the walk. 
we, we have to show them how to do that in a way that is economically beneficial, sustainable. And that's why we think the gold medal is so important and why we listed climate change. This is a case where the only way we can, we can influence the rest of the world is to lead by example. And we're not doing that. In fact, we're doing the opposite. Mm-hmm. As you know, the United States, because of recent administrations especially, has been one of the worst offenders, not the best example of what can be and should be done. Yeah. Yeah, there's a big economic uh, argument to be made as well. Once you take the leadership position in the world, um, you basically are sitting at the you're king of the mountain in a sense, right? You're you're able to set the example for the rest of the world to follow, and that's really, it, to me, that's that's where the United States has been since World War II, and it seems that we're we're backing off from that right now. So I, I I'm I'm. I think that this uh, economic argument is very, very strong part of the ecological argument as well. But there is there is the reality, though, because um, you are fighting. It's not just the politicians, but it's 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 this powerful coal and petroleum lobby that's that's pushing this uh, this narrative. You know that uh, oh, CO two is not bad, or we can tolerate more more carbon, or you know let's let's keep. Uh, um, uh, I think as the president, the current president said, clean coal sort of thing, which is kind of an oxymoron. This is all the result of uh, the powerful coal and petroleum lobbies. So how do we deal with that? Well, one thing that will help tremendously, we think, is having term-limited elected officials. Um, special interests like coal and petroleum, if we have term-limited elected officials, they'll lose much of their clout. Um, they make tremendous investments through their lobbyists and their lobbying organizations uh, with our elected officials and their investments and their good investments because the people they support, as we talked about before, in terms of the incumbents staying in office for decades, the people they support continue to stay there and do their bidding. Mm-hmm. It's not only passing legislation they want, it's also prohibiting the passing of legislation that they don't want. So they're sort of the gatekeepers for reform and change and improvement in this country. So as long as we have uh, 20 and 30 and even 40 year sycophants who need these uh, special interest money in order to stay in office, um, we're going to make very little headway with special interests, including special interests like like coal and, and Petroleum, so it's not it's not the silver bullet, but it will do make a tremendous difference if we have term limited elected officials when it comes to these kinds of um, groups that continue to pour hundreds of millions of dollars into the system to get their way. Okay. Yeah, I would I would add to that too, Jim. Because I think it's a great point. I mean, the, the, in my mind, it may be a little simplistic, but the two greatest ways to battle power powerful lobbies are to get money out of politics and influence consumer demand against them. And I think generational trends and, you know, greater emerging data and evidence of climate change and the effect that it's going to have on, on contributing to climate insecurity are going to keep rising and awareness of it is going to keep rising in each successive generation. And I think that that combined with the incentives to invest in green industries that we're proposing 
uh, is going to disincentivize investment in non-renewable energy projects. So I just think that time is on the side of clean renewable energy. And, and to that end, then, could you, Jonathan, uh, talk a little bit more about the, the grants uh, for projects in the green industries and technologies? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, you know, the grants would be focused on really transforming our economy to a low carbon one. Mm-hmm. It's a combination of uh, a grant investment in new and innovative ways to develop 100% clean and renewable electricity. Uh, I would also um, put um, caps on any new offshore drilling for fossil fuels or ban on new fracking. Mm-hmm. Uh, we would incentivize investments and in purchasing in non-fossil fuel transportation, similar to uh, to tax credits that consumers can take advantage of now. And we would re-strengthen at a minimum to Obama administration era uh, emission standards on, on passenger vehicles. Okay. Now, all these are uh, actually itemized as bullet points underneath the, uh, the manifesto. So I, I, I uh, really... Really like what I see there. So the um, there will be, and this goes back to uh, several minutes in our conversation about training people for. Uh, uh, it gets back to the economy, really, and the ecology. But you know, people will have to be trained for this new ecology. So, um, can you comment at all about uh, how? You know, well, let me ask you this: Will these with these grants be contingent upon? say, quotas of uh, recruitment and training of, of untrained workers, or at least workers that are untrained in the area of the green industries? The, uh, the green jobs that I think we're envisioning, and by the way, you know, we, we don't have a crystal ball, so it's impossible to say what the nature and the variety of green jobs will look like uh, as they evolve. But, you know, some will need training, but frankly, some probably won't. Um, you know, reforestering uh, large areas of the country uh, won't need a lot of training. So when the training is needed, it can be in some cases done by the government, if it's, if it's the guaranteed employment program we're talking about, mm-hmm. or it could be provided by the particular green industry or company that is employing these individuals in the private sector. But one thing I think is, is, is for sure, and that is that because of the rapid change that is befalling all of us and shows no signs of letting up in terms of rapidity, I think most workers in virtually all industries are going to need some retraining at some time during their careers. Mm-hmm. This is going to become a new fact of life. And so private private sector has a big responsibility that's going to get bigger in terms of training and retraining. So is government. And I think that will be true in green jobs as well as non-green jobs. Okay. And um, there's a uh, one thing that I noticed I, I didn't think was mentioned in the uh, manifesto at all, and that is the uh, meat and poultry industry. Um, this, uh, I think a lot of people aren't aware of the fact that a lot of deforestation taking place in, in, in the entire world, as well as uh, you know, water pollution and greenhouse gases and um, and, and just the use of land for um, for you know, beef, basically, and poultry and, and other animals. This is putting an incredible stress on our ecology as well. Um, is this something worthwhile addressing? I know it's not in the manifesto, but is this something worthwhile discussing anyways, how this 
how we can possibly shift our economy or our, our ecology away from uh, a large amount of meat uh, consumption and help the ecology? You're absolutely right, Dan. I mean, the science shows that our current practices of, of meat and dairy production contribute significantly to greenhouse gas emissions. And they occupy an, an inordinate amount of available agricultural land for the number of calories and protein that they deliver to us in turn. And it's true that a vegan diet is probably the single biggest way to reduce your impact on the planet as an individual, not just because of greenhouse gas emissions, but also because of, you know, the destructive land use, water use and soil acidification and those types of things that you mentioned. So I think there's value in seriously considering unlimiting subsidies of organization industries that promote harmful agricultural practices from a regulatory perspective. But there is also a tremendous amount of research and investment being done in meat substitutes. And even for companies that are still using, for example, beef products, I've seen some that have begun to use labeling to educate on what the total environmental cost to produce that serving was on their packaging in an attempt to influence consumer behavior. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I think, too, and I've seen some calls out of Europe. In the UK recently, they had a, a an MP who who talked about banning meat and and you know kind of had this neat idea. I thought of repositioning meat culturally to be more of a treat uh, rather than the centerpiece of every meal. So mm -hmm. we've got options out there. Um, I think as long as we are, limit the government's actions to encouraging limited or or less you know environmentally disruptive meat consumption. Uh, rather than trying to criminalize carnivores, uh, I can get on board. Right. Okay. Well, um, let's uh, move on to the next topic here, um, healthcare. And um, this is a, a huge topic. And one of the things that I've noticed with this uh, pandemic is that a lot of people are losing their jobs and then therefore they lose their healthcare. So we've tethered our healthcare to our jobs and, um, now that a lot of people are out of jobs, healthcare becomes you know, a very high priority. So, um, could you uh, uh, perhaps, uh, uh, John, maybe you're a good one to talk to you about this one as well, to, to tech, uh, highlight some of the of the um, advantages of the healthcare uh, gold medal? Yeah, thanks, Dan. You know, it, even at its best, our health system is among the most expensive in the world. You know, over fifty percent of personal bankruptcies are attributed to an inability to pay medical debt. And yet it still delivers quality outputs and health outcomes below that of most developed nations. And, and we do believe that uh, there are tremendous benefits to the government stepping in and ensuring universal access to basic primary chronic disease and psychiatric care for all Americans, as well as uh, kind of subsidizing in-home and skilled nursing home care for elderly and other at-need populations. And, and this is important because the health of our society is directly linked to the physical, psychological, and financial health of every individual. Mm -hmm. And caring for others uh, you know, must be the highest American ideal. And we would provide that plan through mechanisms that already exist, but in a way where a patient gets to choose and employ their physician. 
you know, so uh, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, or CMS, already pays for 70% of America's healthcare costs through those two programs. Hmm. Um, and so we're saying that we would expand that funding to include universal access to a health plan that would provide that coverage uh, without a copay for services within its scope. Okay. And uh, Jim, you have any comments on that? Well, you know, as you pointed out, the pandemic has definitely shown how inadequate and how fragile our existing healthcare system is. And um, I, I think that most Americans know that it, it's not working. And as Jonathan pointed out, when you compare our results to other nations, this is why the gold medal analogy works in this area also. Uh, we come up short in, in way too many things. Our longevity, uh, as individuals is not even in the, the top uh, um, echelon of other nations. Uh, we have an abysmal uh, mortality rate among, uh, among pregnant women in our country. So we, we're, we're just not getting the results for the money we're spending. And it's costing us a lot of money because we really do have subsidized health care for all. It's called the emergency room. Mm-hmm. And this is where people who do not have health care coverage or a physician end up going. And then by the time they get there, they're very ill and it costs us three to four to five times more than if they had gone to a physician and been uh, adequately uh, taken care of. So uh, we have a system that's badly broken. The pandemic has shown us that clearly. And now is the time to change it. So there's um, there's this argument, and I think that this was um presented to Bernie Sanders, not an argument, but was basically a question that was presented to Bernie Sanders during one of the debates. And he was asked, uh, will universal single payer health care raise taxes? And I think he sort of floundered on that. So I'd really, um, I'd like to, I'd like to sort of frame taxes in a way that includes our health care, right? Because the way that it works out now, our, our health care costs total over $3.5 trillion, which is uh, more than four times our defense budget. And it's well north of $10,000 per person, whereas um, um, places like Germany, I believe, is, is down to about $5,000 per person in, in terms of, uh, of, of universal health care. So um, would you or could we present that argument that Healthcare, universal single payer healthcare would reduce taxes. Well, it would be, it would definitely reduce costs, mm-hmm. um, and I think that's what Bernie Sanders tried to say, not very articulately, as you point out. But he tried to say, if you look at all the costs that we're bearing for our outrageously expensive and inefficient healthcare system, that would definitely go down. Mm-hmm. Now you can argue about one category versus another of costs, taxes versus. Um, you know, co-pays, all the other things, premiums for insurance. Mm-hmm. But um, the, the price we pay for having an adequate health care and our inability with this health care system that we have now to spend time and resources on preventative health care, uh, all of the science shows that if we just got more serious about nutrition and preventative health care, we would save trillions of dollars in the long run and billions in the short run. So I, I think we can make that argument, Dan, and, and mm-hmm. I think the numbers will bear it out, that we can lower the cost of our health care to, um, to all of the citizens 
And it may not show up immediately in your tax bill, but it would certainly show up in your overall cost of living. Yeah. Yeah. I'd, I'd like to add to that. I mean, I think addition to what you said, Jim, you know, if, even if we set aside the fact that we'll be a healthier and happier society with guaranteed basic health care, the American family, particularly lower and middle income families, I think would see immediate financial benefit as a result. You know, right now they're still paying exorbitant amounts, even if they have employer provided coverage and premiums and high deductibles and co-pays on top of that. And, and our you know, universal basic health care that we're proposing, particularly for primary and preventative care, uh, would wipe out a lot of that cost for a vast majority of that care. And I think you would also see wages rise. A lot of the, the wa wage stagnation that we've seen has come as a result of employers having to provide more and more to provide health insurance mm -hmm. to their employees. So I, th I think there is a very strong... Um, you know, subjective and objective argument to be made that we'll be better off societally and financially with this program. Good. And uh, off to our final um, topic with this manifesto. And this is something I know, Jim, this is something near and dear to your heart, which is education. Could you give us some of the highlights of the educational part of this manifesto? Well, it, Thank you for that question, because you're right, it is near and dear to my heart. And in the long run, I think most of us in the Alliance Party believe that this is the gold medal that will make the most difference. If we have a highly educated public, climate change will be easier to deal with, healthcare will be easier to deal with, our economy will, will su succeed at a much higher level, and we'll be much more competitive in, in all the areas that matter. Um, what we're proposing, among other things, first of all, we have to pay attention to our teaching force. We have an incredibly serious uh, teacher shortage that's going to get much worse. And by the way, the pandemic is making a difference there, too. Mm -hmm. uh, we're seeing where a lot of teachers are not coming back because they don't believe it's safe to come back. Their working conditions were already uh, below what they wanted. Their pay was below what they wanted. And now they believe they're putting, being put in a dangerous situation. So uh, we're going to see a tremendous teacher shortage. And we've got to start paying attention to that incredible group of professionals. I call them our future makers, and they really are. So we've got to do that. And then also we need to, we need to have more innovation and experimentation in our public schools, safe experimentation. And we need to make it a more choice-driven public school system. Um, I think most people know there's something basically wrong with a child being forced to go to a particular school simply because of their zip code, simply because of the piece of dirt that their house or their apartment sits on. They ought to have choice in, in public schools. And I want to point out when we talk about choice here, we're emphasizing the word public school choice. This is not about vouchers. This is not about mm -hmm. taking tax dollars and putting it into unaccountable and often inaccessible private schools. It's giving parents and children more choices within their school district and setting up a mechanism for whereby if that choice does not uh, become available over a reasonable period of time, that they can take their per pupil expenditure and go to another school district that has that choice, that public school choice for their child. So it's trying to make it a consumer oriented 
um, endeavor, which it is not now. Uh, only parents who can afford to have choice have it. Most people do not have the kind of choices they need and want in the public school system. This is a way to provide that. Okay. Good. Yeah, I was a little bit concerned about that because I, when I first read the manifest, I thought, wow, this, um, you know, being able to move into a different school and take your, uh, essentially your, um, um, the per pupil expenditure with you to another school, immediately I thought, oh my gosh, this is not a charter school thing. But uh, it's very key what you say right there, that is, it is another public school. So, you can move into uh, more easily into another public school if the one you have uh, does not um, does not meet your needs. And, and Daniel, let me point out we are we are not eliminating charter schools from the list of choices. We're right. only saying that the choices would be public charter schools. Yeah, yeah, very clear. Th thank you for clearing that up too. Yes, I don't want to eliminate the charter schools, but I just don't. Um, I, I thought it was very unpopular to actually um, take that uh, voucher, if you will, to a to a charter school. Uh, it has to remain in the public school system. Okay, so um, reading the manifest a little bit more too, I, I there were some nationwide standards that you had um, uh, that the manifesto uh, talks about um, having an implementation of nationwide standards for students or schools to pass that um, I, I'm just remembering No Child Left Behind, which I, I think it started off with good intentions, um, but it, it came down to these national standards, these national testing standards and um, the widespread cheating that was going on with that. And, I, and I, well, actually it probably wasn't all that widespread, but it was widespread enough to get the news cycles, right? So, um, could you go into a little bit more detail about how these nationwide standards would be implemented and practiced? Yeah, that's a really good question because we have had some unfortunate experiences with testing, haven't we, as a, as a nation? Mm -hmm. And um, this is very different. This has to do with international comparison testing. Um, there's a program called PISA, P-I-S-A, Program for International Student Assessment. And what it does is it compares uh, proficiency of students in most of the developed and in many of the undeveloped nations in the world. And that kind of goes back to the gold medal again. Um, you know, we used to be up on that medal stand in most areas, math, science, reading, language proficiency. And now we're down, it's painful to say this, but we're down in the 20s and 30s, sometimes even lower. Mm. So, and, and this is the testing program that uh, verifies that, where we stand. So this is a proposal not to test for the individual student. The student grades, um, you know, whether they're going to pass on to the next grade level, those sorts of things will not be determined by these tests, which was, was, was the case with No Child Left Behind and mm -hmm. some of the other things. This is to see how, as a country, and our citizens can, can monitor this, how we are performing in terms of preparing our students and our nation to be competitive in the future. So this would compare our student outcomes in math, because, you know, algebra is algebra, geometry is geometry, no matter what nation you're in, mm -hmm. in science, also in language proficiency, how well our students can read and write and, and, um, and speak uh, their own native language. And we also put in civics. We think it's important for our students 
to be compared to other students and how in terms of how well our, our students understand our government and how it works, uh, what citizenship means in a, demo a democracy like ours. So this purpose is for this international comparison so that we can know how we're faring in this global competition that is going to become more and more fierce in the years ahead. Good. Well, Jonathan, I, um, I gave Jim the microphone on this particular topic because I know that uh, education is near and dear to his heart. He was actually, uh, Jim, I believe you were a state, rep, state, state superintendent of education uh, back in the early 2000s. And uh, you have uh, a, a large, uh, a, a very thorough background in education. So, um, so Jonathan, do you have anything to add to uh, education? Yeah, I think the, uh, what I'd like to add is, is and Jim alluded to it. Um, those are those are also great questions, Dan, about you know standards and and choice driven um, public school systems. But I think it also all starts with the teachers that we have in the classroom. And so I don't, I don't think we can emphasize enough the need to, to reinvigorate the teaching profession. We need to look at alternatives that, that will you know, incentivize people to go into teaching and start building that pipeline earlier in high school. So for those students who identify an interest in teaching, uh, you know, get them into a professional development program that exposes them to the classroom. We need to get more minorities and men in the classroom at all levels of schooling, but particularly in the in the elementary grades, which is still very much a, a, a female-dominated, uh, you know, industry. And I think, you know, we, we have to look at ways to compensate teachers fairly, you know, with, with rates for their wage uh, that are comparable to careers with uh, similar education and skill requirements, and, and look at student loan forgiveness. You know, if someone's willing to put in 10 years in the classroom uh, or, or six years, you know, for those who willingly go to high poverty schools, but we should be willing to for, you know, forgive the investment that they had to make and allow them to serve without that additional financial burden uh, in, in their calling. Good. Yeah. You just, um, you rent, you covered a lot of bullets right there underneath this, um, this particular part of the manifesto. And that was really, really good. I, I, I like the idea of, uh, forgiving student loans after 10 years in the classroom for all teachers. Um, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, if we have a teacher shortage, this is a really good, uh, really good policy to push out there. Right. Well, uh, I think we're going to have to wrap this up pretty soon. Uh, this is my portion of the show, which I call the call to action. Um, how can people get involved in the Alliance Party, Jim? Well, this is a work in progress, this new party, this new approach to politics, um, just like our country is a work in progress. And we want people to um, join us in this movement. Uh, we want them to help us design this new approach to politics. The manifesto, as I said earlier, is our first statement. This will evolve and change in the months and years ahead. But um, there are lots of ways to get involved. First of all, of course, our website is, is a great landing page uh, for signing up and um, signing up for our newsletter. Um, when we do e-blasts, uh, when we do uh, virtual town hall meetings, uh, if you're in our database, you'll be notified. Uh, we also would encourage you to go to Facebook and Twitter, where we also have a presence. Uh, this podcast is something we would encourage you to to tell others about and 
ask them to listen as we talk about issues related to the party and in the country and our lives. Um, we could also encourage you, I think, if you're interested in uh, getting involved at your state level, to again, go on the website and see how to connect and contact the leadership in your specific state and consider uh, being a volunteer in the party's efforts, consider being a candidate now or in the future uh, under the Alliance banner. And so uh, we, we, we need people to realize that we don't have to wring our hands even during these difficult times, that our destiny is in our hands and we think that the Alliance Party can be a part of that new future. And we uh, encourage all of you to, uh, to come to us and to give us your input, your ideas, your, your skills, and to join us. And uh, the Alliance Party website is theallianceparty.com. That's uh, theallianceparty.com. Um, actually, I think it's a www before that. So that's www.theallianceparty.com, all one word. Um, no hyphens or underscores. That's correct. Okay. Okay. And um, we've been talking with Jim Rex, the National Party Chair of the Alliance Party, and also with Jonathan Etheridge, who is uh, the at-large member of the, or one of the at-large members of the Alliance Party. Thank you, gentlemen, for joining us this evening. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Dan. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in to the Alliance Party After Dark podcast. Please consider subscribing to this podcast so that you don't miss any new episodes. Each week, we'll bring you interesting topics from the Alliance Party. You may subscribe on iTunes, Google, or Spotify. Also, keep in mind that the podcast now has a Twitter page at Alliance On Air. All content for this podcast is copyright the Alliance Party. Views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Alliance Party. This podcast is a production of the Alliance Party a decades-long movement of fiscally conservative, moderate, accountable, and reasoned independents, former Democrats, former Republicans, and alienated voters who demand that our elected officials work in the spirit of nonpartisanship for all constituents and provide a better future for our country. This podcast was made possible by your donations to the Alliance Party. If you'd like to join the Alliance Party, visit our website at theallianceparty.com. Drop in, say what we're all about, and get involved. Volunteer your time, make a donation, submit an article or blog, or run for office. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Dan Schaefer, producer of the Alliance Party After Dark, and on behalf of everyone at the Alliance Party, have a wonderful evening, a great week ahead, and we hope you drop in for our next show. Be safe, be aware, and please take care of yourself and those around you.